0: In 2014, an AV Club online piece by Phil Dies Nugent christened Kolchak the Night Stalker as no less than an early model for TV horror. Pre-Buffy, says the article, pre-American Horror Story, pre-X-Files. Dies Nugent observed that Kolchak, quote, knows the ugly truth of the monsters that walk our streets either because he's plugged into some kind of supernatural network or because he remains receptive to the signs that are invisible to those who can't handle the truth. Kolchak is a brilliant loser, an old-school shoe-leather reporter whose career stalled out due to his brashness and an inability to work or play well with others, open to wild theories, reckless speculation, and confidential sources wearing tinfoil hats. He's a hero for the post-60s era of conspiracy movies like The Parallax View and Three Days of the Condor. Darren McGavin's great achievement is to play this guy so he's never self-pitying, even when witches are taunting him and Satan worshippers try to lure him over to their side. I'm David J. Scow, author of The Outer Limits Companion and The Outer Limits at 50, so what am I doing here talking about the Night Stalker? Well, if Mark DeWidziak hadn't written the Night Stalker Companion book, from which I will freely pillage tidbits and intel with Mark's sufferance, Then I very well might have written that very same book, being a period-original, first-run fan of this show as well. In broadcast order, this is the sixth Night Stalker episode, Firefall, and it hit TV screens across the nation on the evening of November 8th, 1974, on ABC. First things first, is it Firefall or Firefall? In the Night Stalker Companion, Mark made the title two words. And he said over the years, he occasionally got the question, why did you make it two words of it's only one on the screen? His answer then and now is, quote, I asked Universal if it was one or two. They checked the records and told me it was two. It was two on the copy of the script I had. It was two on copies of the memos I had. It was two on a Universal press release. So I made it two, even though I assumed the title was a play on the word waterfall. And to those who said, But it's one word on the screen. I said yes, and on the screen for eight years on the air, the title of Magnum P.I. was Magnum P.I. with the P.I. not capitalized. Even though Universal always has insisted the actual title has it in caps, and every standard reference has it in caps, every press release has it in caps, and the whole freaking free world has it in caps. The box set for Kolchak the Night Stalker follows the on-screen title and makes it one word. So now, all these years later, where do I fall in this heavyweight title match? I'm basically Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive when Harrison Ford tells him he didn't kill his wife. I don't care if common usage and common consent make this one word count me in, unquote. But guess what, folks? Firefall, the compound word, is an actual word. I looked it up. Quote from Merriam-Webster, firefall is a tree whose fall is caused by the partial destruction of its roots in a ground fire. It's also the name of a rock band that formed, guess when, 1974, out of leftovers from the Flying Burrito Brothers and uh, another band called Zephyr. Firefall was the second of four episodes directed by Don Weiss after The Vampire and before The Trevi Collection and Demon in Lace. Only Alan Barron directed as many Kolchak episodes. In fact, four men, Weiss, Barron, Alex Grassoff, and Dan McDougal directed 13 out of 20 of all the Kolchaks. Did you recognize Frankie Markoff in his brief and totally uncredited on-screen appearance? That was George Sawaya, who appeared as K6, the melty-faced sailor in that 1956 monster mash, The Black Sleep. He was an actor and a stuntman with over 100 credits all the way back to the early 50s. He was in Repo Man, he was in Escape from New York. Look him up. He died in 2003. If you didn't get a good look at him, you'll see him again in more detail at the conclusion of this episode. About 10 years ago, 2011 as we record this, several of us who've written companion books and blogs on various movies and TV series began to realize the preponderance of available video since the advent of VHS and beta recorders meant that such a reference book or episode guide could no longer get away with simply listing cast members or droning on forever with overlong synopsis describing the stuff that you could now see for yourself in real time. That method had been eclipsed, you see. The viewer no longer needed a blow-by-blow recap. Another cheap jack method is to rehash every single credit for every single actor and that kind of thing became gradually eclipsed by the availability, to ordinary citizens, of things like the IMDB or Wikipedia, as faulty as those can be. The reality here is that many people are now constantly trolling other devices while supposedly watching a film or TV show, never becoming immersed, forever distracted by another screen in the room as they spot-check trivia. The intersections of character actors across TV shows from one to another is interesting, especially for fans of those actors, but it doesn't mean anything, unless it's at least mildly relevant, in this case, perhaps an actor's genre history as relates to the topic at hand, That being Kolchak the Night Stalker. I hope I've managed to keep this tendency under control, or at least interesting. The upside of this is that it is gradually forcing essayists and critics to become more critical, or more discursive, meaning they can't just get away with endlessly padding the cast and credits anymore and expecting it to equal anything more than an already much-repeated episode guide. Mark DeWizziak correctly logs this stuff as trivia, because it is. He noted that for speaking engagements, he also brought a stack of companion-style books explaining how all of these have become more or less obsolete. Mark said... Quote, "mainstream publishers are certainly no longer interested in them and i'm glad i wrote the two i did when i did." Unquote. Now, i'll probably contradict myself instantaneously here, but my mission is the hope that the Kolchak fan will learn at least one single thing they didn't know before from taking this little side trip with me. Now, as we'll discover later in the story when the teleplay was being written, the title of this episode was obviously The Doppelganger. And indeed, that's the title featured on the cover of the the script, crossed out and replaced by Firefall, one word, which may be a bland substitute, vague, vanilla, for the same reason basically that Horror in the Heights was not called Rakshasa, or The Spanish Moss Murders wasn't called Paramel It never pays to confuse viewers who are already language-challenged and might not have ever reached for a dictionary in their lives. That's Carol Vesey as Mrs. Sherman with the little dog. She was born in 1895, and this appearance right here was her final role in TV or film. She died at uh, age 88 in 1984, ten years after this was filmed. The supernatural antagonist of Firefall is actually much more than a doppelganger. He's at least five monsters in one. He fits the stats for an actual doppelganger that is an evil twin, a la Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson. He's also a poltergeist, a particularly irksome ghost who pesters people to stay awake. He's a fire ghost a possessing spirit like the Harla of Diary of a Madman, that movie with Vincent Price in 1963, which involved water, not fire, but yet another of the four elements. Uh, In a 1994 episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, the tale of the fire ghost is literally the ghost of a fireman. Also, pyrokinetics Scientists agree that there is literally no plausible method for a human brain or any other kind of brain to trigger explosions or fires. But my pal Steve Bissett points out the now very famous Caneto de Caronia fires in Sicily fairly recently, 2004 and again in 2014. Accusations thrown hither and yon regarding pyrokinesis, ghosts, earthquakes, poltergeist activity, demons, volcanoes, geomagnetics, UFOs, all of it completely and thoroughly unproven. In his very comprehensive article published in The Atavist in 2016, Ariel Ramchandani sums it up by saying, quote, In such a deeply Catholic country, nothing provides as much drama as Satan, unquote. Victims beseeched lawmakers, the church, and science, and nobody had a coherent answer. Victims wanted to bring arson charges, but there was nobody to charge. They evacuated the town, but the best explanation anybody could come up with was that the fires were unexplained. Hey, maybe it was Frankie Markov. Eventually, they nailed a couple of arsonists, torching places for profit. I recognize Fred Beer right away as writer Bond thanks to his appearance in an Outer Limits episode called The Man with the Power in 1963 with uh, Donald Pleasance. This is a decade later, and he's looking pretty good, especially for a guy who'd be dead in fewer than 10 more years. Cancer took him young at, at age 52 in uh, 1980. You might also know him from uh, Twilight Zone, uh, from Richard Matheson's Death Ship. He was... A sturdy and reliable character actor who worked mostly in TV with a few features like uh, "Damn Pistols of Dallas in 1964 or Assassination in 1967. Next up on our list of Firefall themes is Spontaneous Combustion. Unexplained outbreaks of fire which have historically, frequently been blamed on evil spirits. When it comes to people suddenly bursting into flames as opposed to inanimate objects or buildings for no reason. Well, we have to remember that over the last 2,000 years there have been approximately 150 reported cases of so-called spontaneous combustion, and we also have to remember that the human body is um, about 60 percent water. Closer to the main coal check timeline, almost parallel Uh, Steve Bissett also happened across a uh, 1974 issue of Fate magazine, which chronicled two families spanning four generations subjected to recurrent, spontaneous psychokinesis phenomenon, which involved fires and flying household objects that struck and often hurt them. It had all centered around their baby. Another issue of Fate gave us the term pyrotic, supposedly meaning a person capable of starting fires by other than physical means, which puts it right in the league with spontaneous human combustion, or SHC. That is to say, pseudosciences, something that falls into the descriptive realm of alleged phenomena, just like UFOs and Bigfoot. That didn't stop people from making lists of the characteristics of SHC. As far back as 1825, Uh, Some of these characteristics you may notice apply to the victims' of firefall as well, particularly the observation that the fire has caused very little damage to combustible things in contact with the body. Other such characteristics included the victims were chronic alcoholics. They were usually elderly females. The body had not burned spontaneously, but some lighted substance had come into contact with it. The hands and feet usually fall off. Remember that one. We'll come back to that one in a bit. Or the combustion of the body has left a residue of greasy and fetid ashes, very offensive in odor. Another monster category of Firefall is the sleep deprivation ghost, otherwise known as ghost oppression, where a malignant spirit hectors you to stay awake. Now, it's commonly known that if you lose enough sleep, you're going to start seeing things. Many instances of ghost depression also feature sleep paralysis, the inability to move while the ghostly biz transacts. About 99 out of 100 of these instances can be explained by what are called hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations. Hypnagogic is what you see when you're trying to fall asleep and hypnopompic is what you see when you're trying to wake up. This kind of stuff also explains a lot of demonic visitations in way back when times. The paralysis was often described as an unseen weight on the body. Now, most of this stuff boils down to suggestibility, which should tell you everything you need to know about paranormal phenomena. But what if you really were beleaguered by a jealous ghost who was envious of both your career and your standing, who has the means to take all that away from you by literally taking your place in the world because you've allowed the opportunity to occur by letting your rich guy privilege excuse you from cutting across Frankie Markov's funeral cortege. Brief aside, sadly, this episode marks the last appearance of Carol Ann Susie as Monique Marmelstein. It was three episodes and out for Monique. She was rinsed out of the series when producer Cy Shermack replaced the producer of the first two episodes, Paul Playden. Also jettisoned after three appearances was Gordy the Ghoul, John Fiedler. Although a couple of second-string morgue attendants pop up in later episodes to less effect like Steve uh, Franken in Chopper. It took uh, Carol Ann years to get over her dismissal from the series. She had been discovered working as a waitress at Hamburger Hamlet by uh, Darren McGavin and his wife Kathy Brown. They set up a reading for her at Universal, and before Carol Ann's audition for the scenes, the character was going to be named Allison, and she was going to be a tall, willowy blonde. Uh, McGavin convinced the first producer, Paul Playton, that they should hire somebody short, awkward, and very New Yorkish. Goodbye, Allison. Hello, Monique. Goodbye, Monique. I think it would have been memorable to see more of Monique in the series, which decided to stick with Miss Emily and Ron Updike in the uh, INS newsroom instead. But as we can see in this very episode, Monique replaced Miss Emily on the uh, teleplay level. The Monique scenes in this episode were originally written as Miss Emily scenes, or Edith Cowell's scenes, going back far enough in the series. Firefall is Kolchak the Night Stalker's very first ghost story in a series that never got enough credit for finding new ways to spin tired old hauntings. Several monster presences in Kolchak are nothing more than vengeful ghosts, suitably tarted up and streamlined by... David Chase and Rudy Borchardt and Michael Kozel. In this case, because of the gangster angle, we'll credit David Chase for a polish at least. But ghosts are the backbone of this episode, as well as Chopper and the nightly murders. Uh, Chase's stylized syllabus of monsters was otherwise quite varied and innovative. As I said on the commentary track for The Zombie, besides the ghost stories, there were two other kinds of Kolchak episodes. Classic monsters, a, a vampire, a werewolf, a witch, a zombie. Newcomers, Quetzalcoatl, A Succubus, the Machiminito, the Diablero, and so on. And there's actually a a smaller but no less important subcategory in there. Threats that are completely non-supernatural, being a robot in Mr. Ring, or a uh, thought-out primitive 2001 altered states-looking throwback in Primal Scream, uh, which I should note is particularly notable as being a rare time where Tony Vincenzo is not only convinced of Kolchak's story but thoroughly supportive of it and ultimately scuttled by the same forces that usually shut down Kolchak alone. And I guess in this third subcategory, we could also count the weird lizard guy in The Century, Another Outer Limits connection is the writer of this episode, Bill Ballinger, who did this uh, Kolchak as well as Primal Scream. His uh, Outer Limits episode in 63 was The Mice. But most people don't know him for his primary pursuit, which was as a crime and suspense novelist of nearly 30 books, from his first, The Body in the Bed, in 1948, to his last, The Lost City of Stone, in 1978. He moved freely from detective novels to hard-boiled novels to the spy boom of the 60s. He wrote in the mode of uh, James Cain or David Goodis with a little bit of Frederick Brown thrown in. Like Ezekiel Marco slash John Trinian, who did The Zombie, uh, according to my friend, the late Bill Kreider, Ballinger unfortunately falls into the category of neglected writer whose books are worthy of rediscovery. His 1955 novel, The Tooth and the Nail, was finally made into a movie in 2017. Ballinger was successful as a scenarist, too, having written 11 episodes of the Mike Hammer series, which starred Darren McGavin and over uh, 40 episodics altogether, plus several features such as the uh, Victor Buono movie The Strangler in uh, 64 and Operation CIA in 65. Firefall is Ballinger's last episodic television credit. He died in 1980. Right about now, you're looking at David Doyle from uh, Charlie's Angels here, following in Darren McGavin's preference for finding bit parts for light or comedic character actors. Uh, Uh... You'll also spot Madeline Rue a little bit later on. In uh, Charlie's Angels, David Doyle's character was named John Bosley, which led him to being frequently misremembered as Tom Bosley, who appears in the Kolchak episode, The Century. Are you confused yet? Burned-up bodies seem to be the sub-theme for the fake TV movie, quote-unquote, cobbled together for late-night syndication from this episode and The Energy Eater. I had these on videotape. They were generally called compilation films. They were terrible, awkward, clunky, Frankenstein conglomeration stitched together with vague, repurposed Kolchak traveling shots, literally, as Kolchak seems to drive from one plot to the other, and a bit of overdubbed uh, bridging dialogue and a sad kind of attempt to zip-tie Two episodes together Nobody directed them They were they were entirely created on the editing table Sometime in 1976 Formed up as 95-minute So-called fake TV movies These unwieldy Agglomerations were also Censored for broadcast The burned bodies were ink-blotted And blacked out with something that looks like Really bad Photoshop And the electrocution bed from the energy eater Was severely snipped If not uh, cut out altogether Simon Oakland and uh, Darren McGavin and Jack Greenidge, who is uh, Ron Updike, contributed a little bit of new bridging dialogue. And a few shots of the evil version of Ryder Bond from this show were inserted as dissolves. For example, when Kolchak looks into the sky, he sees the doppelganger's giant face up there. Uh, or, or new scenes, such as a, you know, a tight shot of a newspaper sitting on a desk. Thanks to this re-gifting... The four episodes thus victimized, Firefall and the Energy Eater as Crackle of Death, and Bad Medicine and Demon and Lace as The Demon and the Mummy, these four shows were omitted from the Kolchak syndication package when it started its resurrectional run as part of the CBS late movie in 1979. That run was persistent through 1981 and helped remind Kolchak fans of what they were missing. Each cycle always started with another rerun of The Vampire episode. They were regularly preempted by news specials, basketball games, and reruns of Hawaii Five-O. The two main cycles were 1979 through 1981 and 1987 through 1988. Crackle of Death and the other hybrid movie were also separately released on VHS by Columbia House in the 1990s. My obsessive buddy Steve Bissett also chimed in to point out that writer Bond is in the very fine tradition of haunted musicians, such as uh, Richard Carlson in uh, Bird Eye Gordon's movie Tormented in 1960. Tom Stewart killed me! Or uh, Roy Castle as Biff Bailey in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors in 1965, the guy who shoplifts the uh, voodoo music. Or Alan Alda being possessed or replaced by the ghost of Kurt Jurgens in the Mephisto Waltz in 1971 from the Fred Mustard Stewart book written in 1969. But I think that in a way, though this all goes back to Phantom of the Opera, which good old Gaston Leroux wrote about 1910 and which David Chase had in his pocket as a potential backup Kolchak episode just in case they needed to shoot one fast and dirty uh, on the Universal backlot using, in fact, the Phantom of the Opera stage. And what is Phantom of the Opera uh, but a ghost story told in the Paris Opera House. Did you know the whole falling chandelier thing was based on a true incident? It it wasn't the uh, chandelier that fell, but a counterweight. However, it did hit somebody and, and kill him. Conveniently enough, for our purposes, the Encyclopedia of Literature reports that Phantom of the Opera is a heady stew of all things gothic horror full of ghosts, madness, outrage, superstition, and revenge. Just like Firefall. We're about to witness the death of Philip Randolph Rourke. Well, so much for the sleep theory. Despite the first two reclining deaths in this episode, neither Philip Randolph Rourke nor Kolchak are sleeping when flames burst out to threaten them. This is about to become a lot more complicated once Kolchak consults his gypsy informant. Unfortunately for our continuity department, the crystal clarity of this Blu-ray makes it much easier to see the California license plates on the background vehicles in many shots, as well as the Los Angeles-style city street signs. It's called suspension of disbelief, folks, because sometimes you have to hoist it. In a quite unexpected article that popped up in The Guardian in March of 2021, unexpected because who covers the series now except us, writer Doug Wallen calls Kolchak the Night Stalker, quote, a wincing pleasure to watch between its low-budget 70s scrappiness and its resistance to any satisfying closure. Well, I'll address that whole closure thing in just a little bit here. Wallen also calls Kolchak Sisyphean, a particularly apt likening between Carl and the former king of Corinth in Greek mythology, who twice cheated death and was thus condemned by Zeus to roll a boulder uphill in Hades for all eternity. Get to the top and the boulder rolls back down to the bottom. Start again. For all eternity. Wallen says, That's exactly how it should be for Kolchak, always on the hunt and never any closer to success. Kolchak runs on sheer persistence, unquote. And thanks to the preponderance of comic books and books that followed in the wake of the show's cancellation, Kolchak has definitely matured over the years into a legitimate cult item, the kind of thing the original fast buckers at Universal could never have accomplished intentionally. Just so you know, that is the rather bombastic Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony that they are rehearsing for their alleged children's afternoon concert, which we saw announced on the sign outside as Kolchak walked in. I mentioned over on the track for The Zombie that Karl Kolchak had a surprising longevity and persistence for a character that apparently uh, nobody at the studio wanted around. There were assorted efforts to resurrect him in assorted movie projects starring the latest flavor-of-the-moment actor, but first of them all was Dan Curtis's attempt to do a Kolchak clone in a TV movie called The Norlis Tapes in 1973, which, if you squint, could pretty much be a lost Kolchak episode. The beats are identical, the format's the same, except that David Norlis is uh, Xeroxed off as some sort of true crime writer, not a reporter. And if we're to judge by his Kolchak-like voiceovers, uh, he's a writer responsible for some truly punishable prose. Just like Kolchak, Norliss leaves behind a record of his investigations in the form of a stack of cassette tapes. William F. Nolan wrote the teleplay, presumably based on a story idea by Fred Mustard Stewart, who we just mentioned. Remember Fred Mustard Stewart? The guy who was briefly a flash-fire horror writer during the 70s in the wake of The Exorcist with... uh, Books like the Mephisto-Waltz and the Methuselah Enzyme? I don't have any details on his story idea, other than it involved a walking dead man. The same of which could be said for both the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler, when you think about it. It was written under the working title Demon, which might suggest to you what the menace was. In this case, uh, an Egyptian god named Sargoth, who inhabits a sculpture specially prepared for him with blood in the clay by an artist who will thus gain immortality in trade. Yes, all the victims in the Norlis tapes were drained of blood too. On paper, Roy Thinnes, veteran of the invaders, must have seemed like a terrific choice for David Norlis. Tormented writer, skeptic-turned-believer, but his performance is somnambulant and dull, a polar opposite to the sheer verve of Kolchak. About the time the Norless Tapes was broadcast as a pilot that never took off in early 1973, Dan Curtis also greenlit a third Kolchak TV movie, The Night Killers, asking Richard Matheson to script it. Matheson handed the job off to Bill Nolan, who was right there in the Curtis camp, thanks to the Norless Tapes. Eventually the script was credited to both Matheson and Nolan, and concerned an android robot takeover of the government in Hawaii, Uh, set up by aliens from a flying saucer. But Darren McGavin and Dan Curtis were at loggerheads by this time, and simultaneously the idea of a weekly Kolchak series was broached without Dan Curtis, which is one of the reasons we're all sitting here right now. I hate to keep coming back to this. No, I don't. But the Night Killers is amazingly similar to the plot of a never filmed Outer Limits episode written by Joseph Stefano, Richard Newman, and Lou Morheim back in 1963. Its title was "Little Mother of All the World." There's a book that uh, you can look it up in if you're if you're interested. Side note: Kolchak actually refers to his digs in the Night Killers as a furnished room, which. Quote, like Llewellyn P. Crossbinder, was ugly, bleak, and overvalued, Unquote. He actually gains the use of a beach cottage being in Hawaii. He also goes through a series of automobiles he ironically calls Chariots of Delight. Still, the Norless tapes is probably a pretty good barometer of what the never-filmed Night Killers movie would have looked like if he subtracted Matheson's signature humor and handed the entire project off to second-string players. Basically, likable actors plod through a procedural of the strange, accented with those signature Dan Curtis attack sequences by an inarticulate snarling menace that tosses people around and culminates in a pallid climax that doesn't amount to much of a resolution. What makes the Norless tapes interesting in the Kolchak canon is its class reunion of much of the talent on both sides of the camera uh, for those Kolchak telefilms. For completus only, it was still impactful enough for Gene Roddenberry to rip it off several years later with his own failed pilot about occult cult detective, Spectre, in 1977. But another failed pilot about another sleuth of the supernatural, Leslie Nielsen, had been turned around into a feature film called Dark Intruder in 1965. And of course, Joe Stefano had already been there first, too, in 1964 with another unbroadcast pilot, The Haunted, Starring Martin Landau as Psychic Investigator Nelson Orion, which was also released at feature length in foreign markets as The Ghost of Sierra de Cobre. And you can obtain both versions for your very own Via Our Home Planet, right here on Kino Lorber with a commentary track by, well, me. Now this tea room revelation is basically the moment where the story hangs a left turn into Invasion of the Body Snatchers, because Doppelgangers aren't always ghosts looking to possess someone, nor is there any kind of supernatural rule that they have to wait for you to fall asleep, nor is there any of this holy roller stuff about a doppelganger not being able to enter sanctified ground like a church, nor is there any prescribed methodology for the elimination of such pesky spirits. It's all confabulated from bits and pieces of all the assorted different myths, which is guaranteed at some point Uh, to lead to Kolchak digging up another grave, just like he did in The Zombie. Now, I don't know if anybody else has touched on this in their commentaries, but when Kolchak shut down in 1975, the series had, by Darren McGavin's estimation, as told to Mark Dwitziak, quote, over $75,000 in unproduced material, scripts, story ideas, story outlines, unquote. As Mark says in The Night Stalker Companion, if there had been a 21st episode, it probably would have been one called Eve of Terror, a Stephen Lord script taken to final draft by Michael Kozel in early March 1975. The two writers had already collaborated, so to speak, on uh, Demon and Lace, and the story involved an unwitting female Jekyll Hyde scientist transformed into a killer alter ego by experimental high-frequency sound waves. Other unfulfilled ideas involved a beast child in a mining community in West Virginia, another Deal with the Devil story called The Get of Belial, Uh, murderous wax figures coming to life in The Executioners, and that emergency bottle show I mentioned proposed by David Chase as a way to use the old Phantom of the Opera stage uh, right there on, on the back lot, essentially a haunted monster movie stage story. Uh, There was a story about Bigfoot from Zemeckis and Gale, who had done Chopper, Uh, a story about the Medusa, a Native American legend called the Piazza Bird. But Kolchak went dormant until he was resurrected in spirit as Agent Arthur Dales for two episodes of The X-Files in 1998 and 1999. As I said on the commentary track for The Zombie, McGavin's third appearance as Dales was sidelined by a stroke and M. Emmett Walsh came in as a pinch hitter, but not as Dale's brother, my mistake, but as Dale's uh, himself. As far back as 1986, Bill Nolan uh, had also resurrected the protagonist of the Norless tapes as a paranormal investigator, uh, David Kincaid, for three stories that were finally collected together in 2011 in a book called uh, Kincaid, A Paranormal Casebook. Kolchak thrived in print as well, starting in 1994 with an original novel by Mark DeWidziak called Grave Secrets. Before this, Jeff Rice's original The Kolchak Papers novel, unpublished until the first TV movie was a smash hit, and The Night Strangler, Rice's uh, novelization of Richard Matheson's teleplay for the sequel, had been reprinted and recombined in various forms by various publishers. Okay, hold that thought for a second. We'll come right back to... Uh, The book's in print, but Kolchak is fixing to reel off a hit list of victims of fire ghosts, which is pretty much made up uh, to parallel similar scenes and structure you will remember, especially derived from the TV movies. Kolchak's list is made up, but uh, I've got my own list. Literally, the history of so-called fire poltergeists was cited in a 2016 article called Mysterious Cases of Pyromaniac Poltergeists, compiled by Brett Swancer. He gives us Odin, Indiana in 1841, Bladenboro, North Carolina in 1932, Flat Rock, Ohio and Macomb, Illinois in 1948, Tarpon Springs, Florida in 1952, Talladega, Alabama in August of 58, Orland Hills in Chicago of March 1988. I could go on, but I won't. Now, most of the subsequent prose novels uh, concerning Kolchak were bannered under the masthead series title of Kolchak the Night Stalker, which forced the use of two colons. If you're interested, uh, titles include A Black and Evil Truth, The Lovecraftian Horror, and The Lost World, all by C.J. Henderson, The Faceless God by James Chambers, Penny Dreadful, The Time Stalker, the Night Chicago Died, and a novelization of The Night Killer script by Chuck Miller. The Last Temptation by Jim Beard. And Strangled by Death by Will McDermott. Most of these were published in the 2000s. There was also a series of Kolchak anthologies featuring original stories by multiple contributors, all mastheaded under the general title Kolchak, The Night Stalker Chronicles in 2005. Uh, the Night Stalker Casebook in 2007, and The Night Stalker, Passages of the Macabre in 2016. The first two books were omnibused in 2011 as The Night Stalker Compendium. Then inevitably, there were comic books. There was the 1974 Marvel comic spoof, uh, The Night Gawker, um, a Kolchak-inspired character named Paul Butterworth in a 1976 issue of Tomb of Dracula and a Kolchak cameo in Sterling Clark's The Renegade number 1 in 1993 as part of a story called The Night Slayer. Right now, we're having a short visit with uh, Virginia Vincent, who plays uh, Frankie Markoff's widow, and uh, was an ingenue back in 1958 when she appeared in The Return of Dracula, and uh, later played the matriarch of the Carter clan, the mom in the original The Hills Have Eyes, about 20 years later. Now, comic book wise, around 2002, The Floodgates really broke up, unleashing a cascade of nearly 40 different Kolchak titles in graphic novel formats, some of them doing weird things like teaming Kolchak up with H.G. Wells' Dr. Moreau, or Anne Francis's Honey West, or, or Sherlock Holmes, or The Green Hornet. Many of these efforts were not so much an attempt to spin off or modulate the character of Kolchak so much as shellac a single version of him in amber for endless replication in the Further Adventures of category nothing wrong with that of course but it's a very low bar and a total no growth scenario that has befallen everybody from James Bond to Doc Savage. Bond couldn't escape that white tuxedo Doc can't escape that ripped up safari shirt and Kolchak is still dressing exactly the way he did in 1974. I had an idea how to address this once but no go and lo and behold time passed until the night stalker was rebooted as a brand new TV series in 2005 reboot Kolchak the night stalker how dare they right revamp Kolchak into a post Darren McGavin tormented hero with a dark secret Lose the seersucker suit. Lose the hat. Lose the yelling matches with Vincenzo. Subtract the idiosyncratic byplay. In fact, stomp cruelly on childhood recollect of everything that made Kolchak the Night Stalker memorable. Bad, bad TV people. Evil reavers of cherished youth, right? ABC sure thought their 2005 series was a massive fail because they cancelled it after only six episodes aired. They shot ten. Fans of classic Kolchak had plenty to bitch about, too, whining and stamping their hooves about each and every microscopic deviation from what they were convinced was some kind of gospel. And in the middle of the first decade of the 21st century, internet comment boards gave even the least literate of these champions ample space in which to wheeze and poot their displeasure as though their opinions mattered for anything when the network itself had dropped the axe. But Classic Kolchak was abundantly available by this time in the form of comics and tie-in books uh, and new tales that played by the old rules. For the most part, they didn't preserve or perpetuate Carl as, like I said, him in amber, the way John Gardner's modernized novels tried to preserve the Playboy philosophy era James Bond. Accurately, but at the airless cost of repeating what had already been done or or they reconfined him with those other fictional sleuths and other and other weird characters upside well these ongoing works still kept the flame burning i guess like many other kolchak acolytes producer frank Spotnitz had begun his career as a journalist before he fell into the x-files for a marathon nine season run when he was offered the Night Stalker by ABC and Touchstone Television, he grabbed it with both hands because he had been 14 when the original series debuted and freely admits he was one of the show's biggest fans. Accordingly, he had attempted to write Carl Kolchak into the X-Files, which was a plan scuttled by Darren McGavin, who initially felt ripped off. Once McGavin got a proper taste of the X-Files, he came on board as that thinly disguised Kolchak Man K for, for two episodes. In the episode Aguamala, McGavin points out to Fox Mulder, quote, If I had had someone as savvy as Scully all those years ago, I might not have retired, unquote. While it's fair to say that the X-Files helped enable this Kolchak reboot, it was also a huge obstacle. Kolchak now had to fit into a post-X-Files TV universe and not be dismissed, as some put it, as X-Files light. Considering all the other spin offs and features in the X Files family, it's a shame Kolchak's run was truncated, leaving potential character arts undeveloped and unexplained. As the pilot episode proved, Spotnitz's heart was in the, exactly the right place, even extending to uh, three hat tips to classic Kolchak. Number one was a digital cameo by McGavin himself uh, as Kolchak in the Beacon newsroom. Look close and you'll see it's a shot of Kolchak putting a hammer and stake in his work bag from the Night Stalker. Uh, the second one was Kolchak's bird feeder hat hanging in the new Kolchak's home office. And the third one was the license plate on Kolchak's upgraded Mustang, which read 197DMG2, as Spotness explained for Darren McGavin 1972. Vincenzo was recalibrated as minor royalty, more than a blustery father figure. This revised Tony would go to bat for Kolchak, especially when constitutional rights were at stake. Kolchak himself was subdivided into a threesome for the sake of more character interplay. Kolchak himself, now a man harboring a dark secret on a personal quest. Perry Reed, a distaff side and reluctant partner who takes over much of Vincenzo's old uh, Doubting Tony role. And Jane McManus, who assumes the role of Kolchak's camera and tape recorder and becomes his satellite and uh, Gopher, remember Bernie Fane from the original TV movie? Well, he reappears, now refitted as an antagonist in the mold of uh, uh, the fugitive's uh, uh, Lieutenant Phil Girard. Thanks to incomplete information and circumstantial evidence, he wants to nail Kolchak for the murder of his wife, Irene, who was christened after the Kathy Brown character in The Century. The blood, so absent from the original series, uh, was now present in abundance, offered more as a grueling aftermath than as jumpy splatter. Spotnets specified a color palette where red was used almost exclusively in the context of death or danger, even to the extreme of removing the red lights from uh, police cruiser flash bars. Another welcome wrinkle for a show called The Night Stalker, this show was drenched in darkness, night, and shadow kind of reminding us all of the way David Chase protested that uh, Universal wanted to shoot the 1974 series Day for Night, shooting now in real nighttime, night for night, and evoking a kind of a hectic, after-hours, urban point of view popularized by uh, uh, Michael Mann, under whom Spotnitz had worked on a show called Robbery Homicide Division in uh, 2002. Slotted into a kiss of death birth against the hugely popular CSI on CBS, The Apprentice on NBC, and the 2005 Major League Baseball playoffs on Fox, The Night Stalker suffered preemptions via Alias and had little to no paid advertising from ABC. It was canceled right in the middle of a two part episode, with four episodes unbroadcast until the series was rerun on the Sci Fi Channel in 2006. You can get all these episodes if you're interested, uh, all on DVD and assorted download options. In an interview conducted by Devin Farachi for uh, Chud.com in 2006, Frank Spotnitz noted, quote, The more I thought, the more I realized you can't do Darren McGavin better than Darren McGavin. It's a fool's errand. It was better to go for a completely different approach to the character and series and hope that over time people would accept it not as better than McGavin, but different, unquote. Carl Kolchak wasn't heard from much after that, except for another spiritual nod during The X-Files, which uh, got itself resurrected for an additional season in 2016, and an episode called Mulder and Scully Meet the War Monster, based on a Darren Morgan script titled The M-Word which had been written originally for the Night Stalker revival we just talked about. Comedian Riss Darby plays a shapeshifter, not a human who becomes a lizard man, but a lizard man unprepared for the burdens of shapeshifting into a human being who dresses exactly like one of his victims. Some guy in a seersucker suit wearing a banded straw hat. Let's glance at Bill Ballinger's original teleplay, Uh, called The Doppelganger, which runs long, 67 pages long, whereby the yardstick of thumb, it ought to consume about 51 or 52 pages. Many early draft Coltrack scripts exceeded this speed limit, the most amazing being The Youth Killer at a whopping 76 pages. Something had to go from the doppelganger. Basically, 16 pages had to go. And when you're done adjusting a script for length, you start trimming overly costly or complicated scenes or effects. And Firefall already contained a lot of potentially troublesome and dangerous live fire gags on set, a lot of them with Darren McGavin right in the middle of a conflagration. The first interesting bit is that Coltrac is already exhausted, worn out as the story begins, We see uh, Frankie Markov's widow riding in the funeral limousine, sitting next to the guy who shot her husband. During the first scene at INS, Kolchak slouches in 10 hours late because he says, I was practically up all night trying to run down that story on Mason and Ryder Bond. Then Vincenzo redirects Kolchak to the real estate swindle story, and we hear Kolchak's voiceover. The Wilkinson family are the biggest rip-off artists in the country. When they hit a town, it's like a plague of locusts hitting a wheat field. They're gypsies, a couple of hundred belonging to the same family. They follow the seasons, traveling back and forth across the U.S. in a fleet of Cadillacs. And here was a crew using one of the oldest homeowner hustles, driveway resurfacing, which consisted of scattering hot motor oil around with a broom. This is where Kolchak first meets Maria. When Philip Randolph Rourke burns up, The script specifies that his blackened corpse falls out of the car, but that his hands remain fused to the steering wheel. Remember the hands and feet thing we mentioned earlier? In that wonderfully creepy scene where Kolchak is talking to the doppelganger in Bond's apartment, the first thing to ignite in the apartment is the aquarium. Kolchak tells a neighbor to call the fire department and then jumps in his car, whereupon the back seat of his car catches on fire while he's driving and the whole Mustang is quickly engulfed in flames. When Meyer, the cop, shows up, Bond's apartment is untouched. Meyer accuses Kolchak of malicious mischief. Now, driving a rented car, Carl actually visits Dr. Stern, the one we see counseling writer Bond in the church later. Then he goes to visit Maria. Meyer actually lets Kolchak see Markov's file. When Kolchak visits Sophia Markov, the tone is completely different. The apartment is a dump, Sophia hates her dead husband, and there are five other children raising hell in the background. It'll interest you to know that Frankie's budding arsonist son is named Thornton. There's a scene where the doppelganger chases Carl down the alley behind the pinball emporium, and as Carl runs down the alley, the wall, the trash cans, and a fire hydrant all burst into flame. As Carl drags Markov's corpse to the arcade, his rented car now bursts into flames, and as he drags the sack along, the garbage cans and alleyway detritus kept fire. When he enters the arcade, the jukebox and all the pinball machines come on chaotically. There are also wax figures in the arcade that catch fire as Kolchak entreats the ghost of Frankie Markov. And you may have noticed when Kolchak is digging up Frankie's grave, uh, the shot is from the zombie. Uh, You can actually see the shoe tips of the gangsters in one angle. And now, closure for Kolchak, I've got it for you right here. There's a magical episode of Tales from the Dark Side titled Distant Signals, which I maintain can be interpreted as a final and most satisfying chapter in the Kolchak legacy. Distant Signals was based on a short story by Andrew Wiener, originally published in Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone Magazine in 1984. The teleplay was by uh, Ted Gershony, and tells the tale of another TV series deep-sixed in mid-season, Max Paradise a detective show loosely modeled on The Fugitive. Its washed-up star Van Conway was played by Darren McGavin a decade after he had logged his final Colchak episode and 27 years after he had played tough guy Mike Hammer, another model for Max Paradise. 17 years after the mid-season cancellation of Max Paradise, an alien benefactor visits Earth to resurrect both Van Conway, now an alcoholic has-been, and the series itself, a foul ball to almost everybody involved in it. The Visitor, wonderfully played by Lenny Von Dolan, wants the old team to reunite to make six more episodes of Max Paradise to bring closure to Max's story. Why? because the faraway aliens have only just received our TV transmissions, and we're dismayed that Max's story just seemed to cut out in midstream. If you squint a little bit, it's easy to read the episode as a charming metaphor that saves Carl Kolchak from the whatever-happened-to file. If you'd like to learn more, much more, there's a very entertaining Kolchak blog in which Mark Dawidziak and I and other worthies participated in 2016. With uh, robust entries and comments for all things Kolchak, just search for the title, It Couldn't Happen Here. And if Google gets confused, search for a Kolchak a day. Arthur Rowe's original script for Legacy of Terror uh, was originally titled Lord of the Smoking Mirror. And it features Kolchak in a voiceover that was never filmed, and it's worth quoting here as a summation of the Kolchak mantra, if you will. Quote, among philosophers, great thinkers, and the common Joes of this world, no question is more controversial than truth. What is it? Who has it? Is it good or bad, or who decides which? One school holds that if you don't know it, it can't hurt you. Another says that knowing it will set you free. A third claims that it always hurts anyway. The Kolchak opinion is that truth exists independently, doing its thing, and it doesn't give two hoots if anybody believes in it or not. And disbelief doesn't affect the end result either way. Remarkable as they may seem, I can attest that the following events occurred. Your only choice is whether you believe them or not." Unquote. That's it for Firefall. As Monique Marmelstein said in a line she never got to deliver from the original script, when is a house not a house, when it's a flame. I'm David J. Scow, and thanks for listening.